0: I guess Mark. In some ways, I think of the cafe as is holding the, the structure, particularly for early recovery. When you it's you got to put you put one foot in front of the other, and what and it's a safe place, and there's resources and um, and people care, people actually care if if you're there the next day. And but there's it's also holds a space for these like moments of significant, like someone getting a job and it changes their life, or getting that housing and it changes their life, or we've been a place of reunification. In, some instances for people with their loved ones Um, but there has to be the the place to hold that Um, and to me that's what the cafe does it kind of holds the space to where the miracles can happen
1: this is the beats working show we're on a mission to redeem work the word the place and the way i'm your host mark wright join us at winning the game of work welcome to beats working on the show this week, the work of helping others recover from addiction. Those of you in the Seattle area may be familiar with Recovery Cafe. It's an amazing nonprofit that helps people facing homelessness, addiction, and mental health challenges. Our guests are Killian No, co-founder of Recovery Cafe, and David Coffey, the organization's executive director. Their mission is to provide a place of radical hospitality to create a connection to resources and an authentic healing community for those who are struggling. But an amazing thing happened as the years went by. People in other cities and states called and said, we want a Recovery Cafe in our town. So, the Recovery Cafe team put together a social licensing plan to help share the model. The Recovery Cafe network was born and an endeavor of shared ideas, training, and collective impact came about. Today, there are more than 60 Recovery Cafe locations across North America, all because a dedicated group of people decided to make healing communities their life's work. And if that isn't redeeming work, we don't know what is. Welcome to Beats Working, winning the game of work. We've got two very special guests this week. Killian No, the co-founder of Recovery Cafe and Recovery Cafe Network, and also David Coffey. David is executive director of Recovery Cafe. He also serves as the chair of the board for the Washington Recovery Alliance. Killian, David, it's so great to have both of you here. Welcome.
2: Thank you. We're so happy to be with you, Mark. Thanks, Mark.
1: Uh, Killian, if people have not heard of the Recovery Cafe, um, give us a, a nutshell on, on what Recovery Cafe is.
2: We are a place of belonging, a place of becoming, a place of, of being loved.
1: And so, David, as the guy that's in charge of running this whole thing that Killian helped co-found, um, I've driven by, I, I remember driving by the Recovery Cafe in Seattle for many years and thinking, oh, huh, that must be an interesting cafe. And I had no idea of what the actual background is. When people ask you, David, what um, Recovery Cafe is, what do you tell them?
0: Well, I, I should say, it's it's not me responsible for running. It's a whole team that does an incredible job. So I'm, I'm fortunate to work with the best people in the world. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I see it as um, a recovery center where we're all on the recovery journey together and we're a membership organization. We're not a drop-in organization. So uh, every member has their own rights and responsibilities. Uh, and Really kind of echoing what Killian said, we all need to know and be known, uh, to love and be loved, and have a sense of belonging. And Recovery Cafe's community radical hospitality creates that space, and then it becomes an anchor for people uh, to to live in recovery and mental health wellness.
1: Yeah, and we're not just talking about people in recovery. We're talking about people, as you said, with mental health uh, challenges, maybe life challenges. Um, What's the spectrum, Killian, of people who can walk in your door and and to get some sort of help?
2: Well, I'd like to go really broad here and say that we are all recovering from anything that blocks our capacity to love and receive love. That includes uh, most of us humans when you think,
1: I I would say so. And and I, I love that definition because when we really look at what life is all about, we don't come into who we are truly until we get to that point of being able to show love to other people and to accept love. And a lot of things can short circuit that, can't it? Totally. So Killian, take me back in time. I'd love I'd love to know more about your background. I love your accent, by the way. You're from the Carolinas. What was childhood like for you? And give me give me the idea of of what little Killian was like way back in the day.
2: <laughs> I I grew up in a small town in the mountains of North Carolina, and I think I was one of the very blessed uh, ones to. Experience being known and loved in that little town, and I, as David pointed out, that is our special sauce at Recovery Cafe. We try to welcome people into that experience, whatever their childhood was like, and and for many, um, it was. A childhood of trauma, but whatever their life experience has been, we want to welcome them into an experience of being known and loved.
1: Were you involved in the church at all back back in the day? Or what was what was your experience in terms of service and just your 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 heart uh, with its capacity to love other people?
2: Well, my dad was the pastor in this small town. So I was especially known and uh sometimes I, I resented that everyone knew and watched what the 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 PK's preachers kids were up to. But but they were um it was a town of uh where people looked out for each other and uh um, I think we learned the power of looking out for each other, being there for each other when someone was sick, uh, being there for each other when someone lost a job, and so it, it was. A, it was a good. It was a good place to to be steeped in what that looks like, what what real community looks like, and um, and now as David pointed out. It takes all of us trying to hold that kind of space. Every amazing person on our team, every volunteer, every member. I mean, that's what's so amazing uh, about our community now is it's most often the members who help each other find the right resource Find the, the next step. It, yeah, the staff the staff is awesome, but the members helping each other is really the heart of this model. Don't you think, David?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Killian, I'd love to know how you got to the Washington, D.C. area to co-found Samaritan Inns. Um, where, how, how
2: did that all take place? I had been living and serving as a volunteer in the Middle East. And I met my cute, smart husband there. And after three years of living and volunteering in the Middle East, uh, he wanted to go to graduate school at Georgetown University. So that was our next stop. We, we came back to the U.S. and, and, um, and it was there in... Washington, DC that I first experienced uh, life in an American city because I had grown up in the small town and then been in, and then been in the Middle East for three years. So I, it was I was completely blown away by the fact that there were 10,000 individuals living on the streets of Washington, DC. The capital of the wealthiest country in the world.
1: So, how did that uh, how did that take place? That you started Samaritan Inns and you, you co founded and and obviously started started this mission. Um, were you looking just to provide housing, or or what was the mission of Samaritan?
2: The mission of Samaritan Inns was to provide supportive housing and initially transitional housing and then longer-term housing communities. And how that came about was uh, one Sunday I was at my ecumenical church in Washington, D.C., there in DuPont Circle, and the pastor, who was both a visionary and very pragmatic, He said, you know, when people come to Washington, D.C., from all over the world, they often come to see these marble monuments, when what they ought to see when they come to the capital of the wealthiest country in the world, they ought to see places on every corner where those who have fallen through the cracks can rebuild their lives. And... That's what um, those of us who gathered around that vision, that's what we gave our lives to for the next Mm. many years.
1: Yeah. What were some of the lessons, Killian, that you learned as you built that from the ground up?
2: Never give up on people. Relapse, sometimes relapse in the way of a mental health challenge or the way of a behavior that's not healthy or... Or in the way of substitutes, it's often just part of the journey, so never give up, never give up on anybody. So how
1: did you get all the way out here to, to the West Coast and to the Pacific Northwest? Um, how did that happen?
2: Well, once again, that, that cute, smart husband of mine <laughs> came up with this brilliant idea, which was very hard for me. Because I had put my so put my weight down with the Samaritan communities, um, that I I could have taken what what they call the vow of stability. I could have said, I will be with you, you will be my people for the rest of my life. And and then my husband sent this call to Seattle when after a lot of of uh, negotiation, I um, I decided let's do it. And uh, that and here we are. 25 years later <laughs>
1: <laughs> So when did Recovery Cafe, when was that born and, and you founded it with two others, right?
2: We opened our doors officially in 2004, but for several years before that, we were gathering information, meeting with nonprofit leaders, asking them, what do you feel is missing in, in our community? And over and over and over again, we heard, there, yes, we have great housing providers here, like Plymouth Housing and so many others. And yes, we have so many great nonprofits meeting specific needs, but there need we what we need is a place of deep belonging to hold people as they take steps in all these other areas of their lives, steps toward housing, steps toward their education, steps toward stability in their mental health. So there there needs to be this place of belonging and that just resonated very deeply with those of us who were growing more and more committed to this idea.
1: Yeah, without that without that sort of landing place, without that source of stability, it's kind of hard to put a plan together, right? Because you're just kind of all over the place.
2: Right, exactly.
1: David, when somebody walks into a recovery cafe, and we'll get to the to the point that there are, I think, what, 60 across the country now, which is just unbelievable. When somebody walks in, David, to Recovery Cafe, w- what do they see? What is it like?
0: Well, ideally, they feel like they're walking into a warm, welcoming environment where if we know their name, we use it. If we don't know their name, we introduce ourselves. And um, and it's a it's a beautiful space. I mean, I, I think you've been in there, Mark. Uh, and that's, that's, I would say, really a big part of um, Killian's influence, is that we're going to be this place that The moment you walk in, it says your life matters, that you're worthy of good things. Uh, And so we have a welcome desk. We want to welcome people and invite them in, um, into a space that, uh, you know, Howard Schultz wanted Starbucks to be your third place, home, work, and then Starbucks. And for what we know is true for a lot of our crew is that it's their only place. And Mm -hmm. it's nicer than a Starbucks.
1: Um, So it, it is this idea of a warm, welcoming community space. So you get checked in, you get greeted. Um, what's that process like, David, of getting to know people who come to the Recovery Cafe and and beginning to understand who they are and what they really need to get to the next level of stability?
0: Well, you know, I, I think it begins with that, that welcome, right? Acknowledging a person's inner dignity in that moment. I think a lot of our people feel unseen on the streets, that mm-hmm. people kind of don't make eye contact, kind of avoid them. And we right away want to embrace almost that, Namaste the divine in me salutes the divine in you and you are welcome here and then you know maybe t- to go to, at your question kind of a long way to give you a, a story we um, our first space was literally 1,700 square feet and the five of us shared an office and um, Killian was able to work something out to get an off-site office for me to write grants And so imagine for a minute this gentleman who came in, and he wasn't really interacting with anybody in the beginning, which, which is common. Um, you know, He's coming in for food, pretty much hanging out by himself, not volunteering a whole lot, but then over time became more and more a part of the community, volunteering, uh, welcoming people all himself. And then at one point I was walking through the cafe and I had all my stuff. And he's like, David, where are you going? And I I like, oh, I'm going to our offsite office to write a grant. And he goes, I didn't know we had an offsite office. And I just love that ownership that he had of that. But that's my long way of saying, we, we welcome you. We say, come in. We're a drug and alcohol-free space. If you're drug and alcohol-free, if you can give and receive information, you're welcome. Come be our guest. And then later, there's that process of talking about, you know, what's your story and how can we be helpful? And as Killian said earlier, often the the best resource at the cafe is our other members.
1: Who've been through the process a bit, Right and who can help provide that that face, that warmth, that connection. Um, Killian, community is at the heart of what you all do. Um, how did you come to that realization that a connection within a community is really the key to helping people recover?
2: Just reflecting on our own lives, that anything that any of us had, ever accomplished. We did it with others. So why would that be any different in the challenges of recovery? Um, So all of us who were a part of the early days of Recovery Cafe did a lot of reflecting on what is it we need to grow? What is it we need to stay on this journey that that we've begun and it was all the answer was always we need each other
1: killian every time you speak i'm just it takes me a minute to digest it because there's (laughs) such profound wisdom in everything that you say (laughs) i'm a little (laughs) bit discombobulated at this point because it's just pouring into my my brain um man that's that's amazing that is so amazing David, my understanding is that somebody gave your resume to Killian way back in the day. I'd love to know how the two of you um, first started working together.
0: Uh, Well, that's true. I I was looking for a job in Seattle, and someone had forwarded my resume to Killian. And um, I I got an email from Killian saying, I heard that you're looking for a job. And um, I was in Washington, D.C. at the time. uh, Covenant House, which is an organization that served primarily um, unhoused young people. And Samaritan Inns had always sort of been like, uh, Like, we all knew Samaritan Inns. They always did an incredible <laughs> job on the um, uh, Fannie Mae homeless walkathon. Like, they were kind of the one to follow. And so I kind of thought someone was playing a joke on me. Like, I can't believe Killian Noah wants to talk to me. Um, but I, w- I went to the cafe um, in Belth. you know, that's this tiny 1700 square foot space. And uh, you know, Gillian was sitting there with one of our members, and um, we just we sat, sat down and talked. And one of my favorite parts was, that, and part of me was like, I can't tell if this is an interview or if we're just having coffee. <laughs> and toward the end, one of our members, she says to me, she leans in really close, and I'm like, she goes, you know, I can I can kind of tell you're one of those boring accountant types, but we can help <laughs> you with that.
1: That was my first interview. So when did you know that this was gonna be uh the place for you?
0: Oh, I I mean, after that conversation, I I wanted to be part of it so much. Yeah. Like it just it 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 was just clear to me what incredible place it was. And and kind of to your comment earlier, Mark, just listening to Killian, it that by the way never goes away. You're always like, Well, I gotta I gotta take this in, I gotta think about this for a sec. Um <laughs> uh I yeah, I I thought it was incredible. Um and so you know, there's a there was more to the process than that uh, first cup of coffee together. But um, I after that, I totally wanted to be
1: on deck. And you two didn't know each other in DC, is that right? Or did, had you ever met? No, oh, we're, we're nodding our that. heads. I'm sure that works well on a podcast. <laughs> no, <Yeah>. we <laughs> didn't meet <in> DC.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the,
1: the answer is is no. Um, <laughs> I'd love to know how uh you started to replicate uh Killian. Uh, Recovery Cafe. And, and David, also feel free to chime in. The fact that you have 60 locations across the country is just amazing. What was it like getting that second location? And, and what, what, was, what was it that made replicating this idea possible?
2: The idea was kind of simple to come to. The uh, implementation, not as simple. But we just had groups coming to us You know, initially a group from San Jose, California, who had heard about our work uh, through a church in Washington, D.C., this ecumenical church that I had been a part of for 20-some years. And, And so they were the first group, and then there was a group from Everett, and they would come and they would say, help us do this in our city in our town and so we would give them everything every document we would try to tell them everything we knew and and then as the third group came to us we started to say you know what there might be in a more um, a more efficient way to do this maybe we can figure out how to tell groups of people at the same time how to do this. And that was uh, when that um, the Recovery Cafe Network was born.
1: Yeah. What was the key to successfully replicating? I mean, obviously, people with passion, people with, with drive to, to create these uh, cafes all over. But, but in terms of just retaining the DNA of what you started, what was the key to that successful spread?
2: I'm sure there are a lot of different answers, but as a person who gets to spend time with a lot of these groups, uh, there are 65 now uh, groups in the, across the U.S. And, and Canada. Without a doubt, in my mind, it is the depth of heartbreak that the individuals have experienced in their own communities. Their hearts are so broken by the needs in their communities that instead of just pulling the covers over their head, they lean in to the suffering in their communities. And we see it over and over and over and are inspired by these um groups of people initially it's usually two then five then 12 then who are just not going to sit back and watch people suffer in their town or their city without doing something about it and that's that's what we see in these individuals and and what we get to do is stay inspired by them. Uh, we, yes, we share everything we've learned. We share lots of documents and, and experience, but the process is very much one of being inspired by them.
1: David, you mentioned you know, the fact that it's, it's hard for people to make eye contact with folks on the street and i think just from a personal standpoint i mean when we do make eye contact there there's not there's not any way to avoid that feeling of heartbreak right i mean that's that's when that person becomes real and you know i just i'm just reminded that every time i see someone who's unhoused i think oh my goodness that's somebody's daughter that's somebody's son and it's it's just uh, you know when you when you allow their situation to become clear in your own heart, it, it's hard to ignore, right? Um, David, how did, you get, how did you get inspired to get into nonprofit work? Because I know a lot of people in the nonprofit world and <laughs> they are not paid nearly enough. <laughs> um, it's hard, it's hard work. But how did you first, uh, what first inspired you in the beginning part of your career?
0: Well, Mark, I, I really appreciate what you just said, and I, I, I do think your heart has to break a little bit every day in this work, and if, if it stops breaking, it's probably mm-hmm. time to not be doing this work anymore. Um, yeah. So I appreciate your insight on that. Uh, you know, I, I have just been so fortunate in my life of some incredible uh, mentors, uh, Killian being one, um, another, we, um, we, we called her, our, my, I called her my grandma. But she was a Catholic nun, so she was not my grandma. She was my um, grandfather's sister. But, uh, you know, we would visit her often in Denver, and she ran – it was called the Holy Spirit Center, which was a community support center. And, um, boy, I, she was just one of the most inspiring people in my life and and getting to help out with that and at the soup kitchen. Um, and then I, I would say, yeah – there's certainly there are other professions that pay more, but I am so grateful to be here. I've, I've loved this job. I love the people I work with. And so the seeing, uh, those moments of life transformation are just priceless. It's just such a gift. Hmm.
1: Can you give me an example?
0: Well, well, you know, one would be someone who came in, didn't know anyone did was just here for a hot cup of soup that is now has a kind of ownership to be weighing in on where the executive director is going. (laughs) Uh, I, Another, I um, was in a recovery circle, and um, and maybe Killing can talk more about these. But people share and decide if they want feedback or not. And um, w- one of our members had had um, tested positive for HIV, and every week the group would try to convince him to go back and get another test, um, to, just to make sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it was a very diverse group, and everyone had different reasons why. He he should do that, and um, sometimes he wanted the feedback. Sometimes he said no, I don't want feedback. And then the next person did their share. Well, and then one day he went and he came, and it was a false positive. He he was HIV free, Whoa. and it just the joy that erupted in that room of this very diverse group of people who all authentically, truly were thrilled. And a couple members had different theories on why that it come back false positive. That might not have been why I thought it was, but it was just this moment of shared joy that was just—I'll never forget that moment. It was incredible. Um, wow. So I, I, I guess Mark, in some ways, I think of the cafe as, as holding the the structure, particularly for early recovery when you it's you got to put you put one foot in front of the other, and what and it's a safe place, and there's resources and um, and people care, people actually care um, if if you're there the next day. And but there's it's also holds a space for these like moments of significant, like someone getting a job and it changes their life or getting that housing and it changes their life. Or we've been a place of reunification in some instances for people with their loved ones. Um, but, a, but there has to be the, the place to hold that. Um, and to me, that's what the cafe does. It kind of holds the space to, where the miracles can happen.
1: Kelly, tell me more about the recovery circle. Is that a is that a regular thing that happens at the cafes?
2: Yes, it is, Mark. Everyone, you know, but David pointed out this is a membership organization. And so you you get to come in as a guest at first, but then there's a, a point in time where you have to choose, am I going to be a member of this community? And one of the Requirements for membership is participating in this weekly loving accountability group we call Recovery Circles. And everyone is a part of one, and you are uh, with the same people every week because uh, if you just change often, then then that whole notion of being deeply known and loved gets missed you can uh, if you, if you change too often so the recovery circles really in in many ways are the the heart of what we do because they're the the it's the place where that level of being deeply known and loved takes place
1: Hmm. I remember, uh, my father passed away in 2011, but he spent most of his adult life as a member of a 12 step organization and mentored hundreds and hundreds of guys over the years. And my brothers and I, uh, surprised my dad for his 35th, um, sobriety anniversary. And I'd never been to a meeting like that before and little cinder block building up in Bellingham. And, I as I was listening to people talk, it's kind of like when you were talking earlier, Killian, every, every time someone stood up, I was like, oh my goodness. It's like It was like church times a hundred in terms of the feeling of, of spirituality, the feeling of love, of support. Um, some people got up and said, haven't had a drink in seven days, and people started clapping. And it made me see that that community, that community is probably as close to God as we'll get mm. um, because that's what love is, right? Yes. It's, I'm not going to put conditions on whether I sit next to you and support you. I'm, I'm going to sit next to you and 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 just love you. And I that really opened my eyes. That was a number of years ago. But um, now I get it. Um, mm. I, I get that community. And now I get why my dad was at so many meetings uh, for so many years and uh and stayed sober that way um and and the, gave the gift that that c- kept on giving for other people i love love that idea of of just the power of of that community so thank um, you for
2: sharing that yeah. it, you know i just one quick illustration of that that we uh, uh, one of our members received some really hard news and relapsed one one day and the very next day he was there on the front steps before we opened at waiting waiting for the first person to get there to open the doors and I remember asking him because sometimes when someone relapses with a substance it takes a little uh bit For them to find their way back Hmm. and I saw I was very curious and I said tell me how is it that you made it back literally the very next day (laughs) and he said I said tell me about that and he said well it's the first time in my life that someone cared whether I made it back whoa wow
1: Wow. That's like a mic drop moment. I mean, the, the power of not just accountability, like, Hey, how's the drinking going? But Hey, how are you? You know, I didn't see you yesterday or whatever. Wow. That's an amazing story. Killian. I saw your TEDx talk, uh, from a couple of years ago and, um, that was a really interesting story that you told. I'd love for you to reshare how, on a hike, you were badly injured, and it crystallized your entire life's work. And I thought that was such a beautiful story. Do you mind? Do you mind retelling that?
2: Well, I had, you know, been a part of this uh, Samaritan Inn's work and and then Recovery Cafe work for decades. Um, and was on a hike and fell thirty feet and shattered um, my legs. And and without skipping a beat, this gentleman scaled the rock face to the bottom of this pit that I had fallen into and scooped me up into his arms and then bench pressed me onto the rock about you know, two feet above us, and then he climbed up, and then again, he bench-pressed me onto the next truck, and he climbed up, and again and again, and it just crystallized for me the, the fact that we are all falling in pits in various ways throughout our lives, and that none of us get out of those pits on our own, that they're... We, we rely on those who are willing to, to crawl down into that pit with us and scoop us up and journey with us to the next place where we can then um, do that for someone else. And it just crystallized how I mean, it's a simple image, really, but it's really what this whole healing journey is about. Uh, we're all at some. It even at the same time, we are both reaching out to to help heal another and receiving the healing that we need at the same time.
1: Wow! And where did that happen? You were overseas, right?
2: Yeah, it it was in a, a rainforest in Indonesia. <laughs>
1: That's an amazing story. And it took you a while to recover, I, I take it, right?
2: It did. Yeah.
1: David, what is it about service that is such a key part of recovery when we when we help other people at the same time, as Killian said, at the same time that we need help? Well,
0: you know, we all have gifts to share, but often we, I think sometimes we don't believe that about ourselves. <laughs> you know, um, I think we're often each our own harshest critic, but recognizing that every one of us has a way to contribute and every one of us has agency to make the world better. And it's, it's a way, I think of getting out of yourself when you're part of helping others or helping, I mean, we, recovery cafe can't operate without its members. Uh, And many members have reported that that sense of being part of something and, and being counted on was an important part of that early recovery that, that, um, Often people who are struggling with substance use disorder and mental health challenges, there's, there's shame and isolation and really kind of this brutal self-talk and breaking that and saying, no, you, you are worthy, your life matters, and you make a difference in the lives of others is a, just a powerful part of the, the model that uh, Killian and her, her, the founder set up.
1: Um, David, if you would talk also about, I don't think the average person, and I certainly count myself in that group of just average people, when we look at people who are unhoused in Seattle specifically, um, there's often an intersection of things that have happened in their lives um, that include trauma and substance use disorder and maybe mental illness as well. Because, um, you know, I think if we're honest, people get broken and then that leads to a lot of other things that that sort of keep them broken. What, what do we need to know as sort of outsiders about what, what people on the streets, what do we need to know about them that, that, that we don't know right now? Well, Mark, I'm gonna live with
0: confidence that you'll cut this if it doesn't come out quite right. But okay. I, I, want, I want us to be cautious about equating substance use disorder or mental health challenges with being unhoused. In some ways, I feel like that's our way of forgiving ourselves that we let people be on the streets. That like well, mm-hmm. that's because they're using drugs. That, because otherwise, how can we live with ourselves that there's a tent right outside the door? And I, I mean, yeah. I'm not making up. There's a tent, literally, not far from where I'm sitting. Um, and they did a, a really good study. Uh, you know, West Virginia. If you if you go by opioids, West Virginia has a significantly higher substance use disorder uh, issue than than Seattle does. However, West Virginia does not have a housing issue. And mm. if you look what rent is in West Virginia and what rent is in Seattle, it, the, the difference is astonishing. And, wow. and so the point of this study was that the reason we're, we're looking at unha- one of the major factors of un- people being unhoused in Seattle is is because of the cost of housing. And yeah. and um, and another study was that for every. Um, I think it was $100 a month increase in rent. I can get you the exact fact, but $100 in, um, homelessness increased by 10%. So the, we, we, we have to be careful about grouping that all together because I do, again, think that's our way of forgiving ourselves that this is a reality in our city, mm-hmm. particularly one of the wealthiest cities in the, in the wealthiest country in the world. Um, uh, so that's it. I think absolutely trauma is a significant part of that. And um, I go back to what you said, Mark. That that person is somebody's daughter, somebody's son, and and that that your point about making eye contact and reminding ourselves that that is somebody's kiddo. For me, that's that is how I try to keep it humanized. I think a lot of the dialogue has moved to this trying to dehumanize and other, um, and we and it yeah. So I, I think we've again seen that dignity in each person. Um, I I, I would say that I think supporting groups that are are doing the outreach, that are are welcoming people in, voting for um, policies that make sense, that are are human uh, focused and person centered. That's kind of the difference we can do. Um, I wouldn't recommend um, for most people, like trying to like go into, um, go into the jungle and, and try to make, I, I, I think you're right. There is a lot going on there. And it, it's, I would rather support people who are doing that work and know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But I would also um, say, you know, I, I've, one of the things that Killian said once that just I, I think about every day is, you know, when, when we put our weight down with some sort of suffering in the world, whatever, however it is that we do it, if we're contributing our time, our, our talent, our resources, we then connect ourselves with all the good, all the hope that's going on in the world. And that's really powerful. And every one of us can do that in some way. So I feel like I have absolutely gone a long way around your question, but that's where I ended.
1: <laughs> I, I, I think that was spot on. And, and thank you for making that distinction about housing. Um, I appreciate that. Um, Killian, I'd love to know, I mean, you all are on the front lines of, of helping people who need help. This is obviously a team sport. We've got government agencies. We have people who donate money. Uh, I've been to a couple of your fundraisers which are just unbelievably amazing when you start to hear the stories of the members uh, of Recovery Cafe. Where are we in this struggle in Seattle? I mean, what, what work is left to be done and what are some of the realities that we need to just point out for people to understand?
2: is the question that I was hoping you would ask David, because he's, <laughs> <laughs> he's so great. Well, why don't Why don't
1: you weigh in, and then David can <laughs> okay. chime in after that? Okay. okay.
2: <laughs> well, he's just so great at um, understanding the complexities of our city and our county uh, much better than I am at, at that. But I I will I will say this: we do make choices. Of how we are going to invest our resources as a city and as a county, and and um, we have a mental health system that does not meet the need, and our our housing possibilities options do not meet the need, and and I I just think that we have to look. We have to look in the mirror and say, what choices are we making um, that that keep us always being concerned about this overwhelming challenge, but never quite meeting the need? And so I pun it to you, David, that I set you up for that one. I think
0: I, I should mention that my mom sends checks to Killian to say nice things about me. <laughs> I um, love it. You know, I, I think to me, some of the realities are um, that fentanyl is is just brutal, and it um, it has such a quick half life, and it's really cheap to get. That um, we we need to move to a place where if someone says I'm ready to get help that we can get them to detox and treatment in that moment. In that window, we've mm-hmm. got to hit it. Um, I, I I think the, the concept of safe consumption sites makes sense. I think we've got to keep people alive and give the invitation to changing their, their lives. Um, as Killing said, we, we, we have to think through this housing in a significant way. Um, I, I don't want to get too political, but Washington State is pretty close to last on the list when it comes to uh, funding mental health services. And I think a significant reason for that is because we don't have an income tax. Yeah. I, you know, I could go on for hours on this, but I, I think maybe those are the three I'll, will stay with right now.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, that, that's been debated for so many times. We have so many use tax that are disproportionately unfair to, to mm-hmm. lower income folks um, that, yeah, I, that's a whole that's a whole separate ball of wax. But but I, I hear I hear you with with that. Um, yeah, and the other thing that I'm struck by is that we're not really great at preventive spending. Um, we'll incarcerate someone in the King County Jail for I don't know what is it thirty grand a year, fifty grand a year. I don't know. It's something crazy. Mm-hmm. But at the front end of that. Is is a much smaller cost and opportunity to provide an intervention that might lead to someone not being arrested for an addiction or for whatever. Um, so yeah, but you know, I think that's sort of sort of human nature in our society is that is that we we say we would like to prevent things, but when it comes time to fund them, it, we sometimes are reluctant to do that.
0: I've been thinking a lot about that in regards to school. And I, to me, it would make sense that we would say any, any school that um, you know, has people on the free lunch program, we're gonna invest at the level that there's 15 kids to each teacher in those classes. Hmm. Uh, and yeah, that will be ex- expensive, but I think in 10 years, we would be so glad we did that. We're, we're asking our most challenges, challenged communities to do the biggest lift with the least resources uh yeah and and we we have uh fairly racist drug policies they've been that way since the beginning of this country um and so if we if we did both, I think we could really find that we can move the needle um, we We've got to in my opinion if investing significantly in in marginalized communities is an important part of the equation.
1: I know someone very well who works in a middle school, and on a daily basis basically what the administrative staff is doing is just putting out fires when it comes to kids who are just out of control. And I'm not blaming the kids. I don't know what their home life is like. I'm guessing it's not great. But day after day after day after day, all they're doing is suspending kids and, and pulling kids out of class and sending kids to detention. And it's it's a massive massive disruption, and so when we blame teachers and say why not why aren't you doing a better job, they're just trying to keep control of their class through constant disruption, and and this is scary stuff. Sometimes you know kids throw stuff. Sometimes they bring weapons. Sometimes it's it's, but I think I think your idea of fifteen kids in a class would massively improve the ability of that teacher to meet the needs of, of those 15 kids, instead of just managing this like spinning plates in the air that, that come crashing down almost on a daily basis. So I, I have such respect for people in education now, especially at that level. So um, is there anything that we have not talked about that you two would love to talk about?
2: I think maybe one, uh, we did touch on it, but, but I'm not sure we talked about it as one of our membership requirements. I, I know I, I said that being a part of a, a, a circle, recovery circle, where you're deeply known and loved is, is one membership requirement. And another one is being a contributor, I know David talked about the importance of of members helping members and and coming to understand that hey I have some gifts to contribute to the whole but it is literally a membership requirement that everyone will contribute so it's a it's a part of our it's a core part of our model and I think a very important part of um reclaiming our deepest, truest identities as not only people who are loved, but people who have a lot to give. Where did that come
1: from, Killian, that requirement?
2: I mean, it's a universal truth, right? That it is as we are reaching out to help others, the healing we need is given to us. So it's a it's a universal truth. I think for me, it became alive in that ecumenical faith community I was a part of in Washington, DC, where the assumption was that everyone would contribute. It was not a a community where um, the, the preacher just did all the work. It was a community where everyone it was expected that everyone would be in the trenches working to to bring healing to our city.
1: Killian, did you ever think that Recovery Cafe would be as pervasive and do as much good as it's doing right now with so many different locations across North America? Was that part of the plan? Was that part of your grand scheme?
2: (laughs) No, I, I don't think we ever really thought about numbers, although just the other day, I, I gave David a really big number. I said, David, let's have 300 of these, you know, by 2025. <laughs> by <2025." laughs> no, I don't think it was quite that soon. But no, in the early days, I don't think we ever talked about numbers. We, what we talked about was tapping in to this universal truth that we all need to be deeply known and loved, and we all need to know that we have something to contribute to the lives of others, and that our healing is tied up with the healing of others. So I think we were more passionate about tapping into those truths um, and not focused on what that would look like in terms of numbers.
1: Yeah. David, when people see unhoused folks on the streets and maybe they're asking for money, I think uh, a lot of us feel conflicted. Um, What's your best advice uh, of how we can make a difference, a true difference in a a positive way? I'd rather you ask Killian that one. (laughs) (laughs) Killian, what's your best advice?
2: When you see someone on the street, I... I would say the first thing is ask them what their name is and use their name. Say, well, hello, John. Hello, Jerry. Hello, Cindy. Because we all, it, it, it awakens the dignity in people who, in many cases, have not only been ignored, but despised. So my first Re- reaction would be to ask, hey, what's your name? And use their name in addressing them as a fellow human being.
1: Okay. We're just about to our stop point, and I've just been so inspired by both of you. I think I'd like to end just with a a question to you both, and that is, what gives you hope? I mean, what, what gets you out of bed in the morning when you first wake up? David?
0: I just i have the great privilege of seeing miracles happen every day in this work and that is just such a gift um and working with people who just really inspire me uh that really gives me hope and i know that there are good people working on solutions for these things so i i um i don't have to do it all i've just got to do my part and so that really does that's reassuring to me
1: that's great killian how about you
2: Well, if I could say two things. The first is um, leaders like David Coffey give me hope because it is a very hard time to be a leader and to just keep um, leaning in, leaning in, leaning in day in and day out the way he does. That truly gives me hope. And then I, secondly, I get to meet leaders like david Coffey um through these recovery cafes that are spreading and i get to touch their passion and their relentlessness you know david Coffey is i would say is relentless for the good of others and i get to see that relentlessness for the good of others in other places and so how could i um, how could I not hope when I get to touch that much goodness?
1: Well, I want to thank both of you for your time. Killian No and David Coffey, um, I have a much better understanding now of how you're transforming lives and, and just the underpinnings of of what you believe in the work that you do. Um, I think what inspires me most is that I think a lot of us have this idea that making a difference in the world is is a huge and heavy lift. And I love what you just said, David, is that all I got to do is my part. And But I think what inspires me, Killian, about your story and the others that co-founded this amazing organization is that you had a heart that, that broke and you wanted to make a difference. And one step led to another, led to another. And it, it's led to this amazing organization across North America that's doing so much good so not worrying about how much good you can do, but just deciding, I'm going to do the good that I can and the rest will take care of itself. And that is just so inspiring to see two people who found their calling and, and just how much good it's doing in the world is, is amazing. It's so inspiring. So thank you both for spending some time with us on the podcast today and keep up the amazing work. I'll see you at the next fundraiser. Well, David and Killian, thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful having you on the podcast and keep up the great work, my friends. You're so inspiring.
2: Yeah, thank you for letting us be spend this time with you. Thank you.
1: You bet. Thanks, Mark. I'm Mark Wright. Thanks for listening to Beats Working, part of the Work P2P family. New episodes drop every Monday. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast special thanks to show producer and web editor tamar medford in the coming weeks you'll hear from our contributors corner and sidekick sessions join us next week for another episode of beats working where we are winning the game of work